You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on my book, The Quest for Sustainable Business, an epic journey in search of corporate responsibility. Pioneers and Paradoxes in Search of Sustainable Business The Hungry Spirit When I was starting out in my business career over 30 years ago, one of the management gurus that most inspired me was Charles Handy. In fact, when I was studying for my Bachelor of Business Science degree at the University of Cape Town, I remember photocopying and devouring his entire Gods of Management book and being fascinated by others like The Age of Unreason, Waiting for the Mountain to Move, and The Empty Raincoat. In 2004, I finally had the chance to meet him for breakfast at his Putney flat in London. He struck me as extremely humble, with a quietly engaging manner. I was honoured that he had read my book, Beyond Reasonable Greed, and equally delighted with the comment that he wrote in the front cover of one of his books, The Elephant and the Flea, which I asked him to autograph. Wayne, he said, I like the way you think, and the way you write. I hope that you can help to change the world. Good luck and good writing. I met Handy again in 2008 as part of the Cambridge Top 50 Sustainability Books Project. The Hungry Spirit had been particularly relevant for my PhD, which looked at meaning in life and work, and I also thoroughly enjoyed his biographical memoirs, myself and other more important matters. As I put it in a letter I wrote to him after the interview, I especially appreciate your skill in weaving together business stories, conceptual ideas, personal stories, and philosophical insights. This, in my mind, makes you not only unique as a social philosopher and management writer, but also a wonderful role model for me. The first meaty topic we got our teeth into in the interview was about the shareholder-driven capitalism, since the subtitle of The Hungry Spirit is Beyond Capitalism. Handy confessed, I've always had my doubts about shareholder capitalism because we keep talking about the shareholders as being owners of the business, but most of them haven't a clue what business they're in. They deal through agents of one sort or another, and they're basically punters with no particular interest in the horse that they're backing as long as it wins. So, he continued, I've been very sceptical about this as a responsible model of capitalism. It's the way it's emerged. It's not the way it started, where owners really did have personal stake and often managed the operations. Reflecting on the global financial crisis, he admitted, It gives me a rather rueful satisfaction. I think it's overreached itself, and maybe this correction that we're going through at the moment and the credit crunch is quite a healthy correction. I asked Handy whether socially responsible investment, or SRI, was a useful counterbalance to the short-termism of mainstream shareholders, a way of using their own power against them. Handy is unconvinced. Rather, he says, I want to reduce the power of shareholders. I think they've got too much power and too little responsibility. And everybody else says, well, give them more responsibility. Let them exercise their power responsibly. I think that's a myth. I think we've got to give them less power. 
And so how do you reduce the power? By actually giving other people more power. Give the people who actually create the wealth, the workers, more rights. Don't give the workers shares because then they become shareholders and they get just as greedy as the shareholders. But give them rights. After all, they're creating the wealth. The other people have only financed the possibility of creating wealth. But don't directors have a legal primary duty to the shareholders? According to Handy, shareholders have only one duty, and that is to elect the board of directors. What the board of directors then do is entirely up to them. They have been elected by the shareholders to do what they think is right for the company, not for the shareholders, for the company. The effective power of the shareholders in legal terms is really very small. And so it's a bit of a myth that seems to have grown up that somehow everything that they do is for the shareholders. When I asked for an example of a company that is bucking the slave-to-shareholders trend, Handy cited a company called Camellia, an agricultural products business where 40% of its shares are traded publicly, but 60% are held by a trust a trust which is dedicated to reinvesting its dividends in the countries where it makes its products. So that there's a sort of discipline on the managers, Handy explained, to meet the will of the 40% shareholders who want a decent return on their investment, and so they can't just idle their time away. But on the other hand, they do realise that they're not just working for the shareholders, they're working for the countries and the homelands of the workers that are there. I wondered what Handy thought about sustainable business. It seems most of what passes for CSR he characterizes as jester social responsibility. Things that you can put in your annual report and say, look what a good citizen we are. He explains that being a good employer, being a good producer, just behaving yourself in your communities, that's obviously a good thing. But it's not attacking the heart of the problem as he sees it which is that companies' purposes are skewed inevitably towards the shareholder rather than the customer. For Handy, proper sustainable business means looking after your workers and producing wonderful products that do their job properly, that are user-friendly and not harmful in any way. I concluded the interview by returning to Handy's main theme, which is the quest for purpose in business. Reflecting on this, he said, I don't think it's easy to find your meaning in the big corporations these days. I sometimes say that without meaning to. They become prisons for the human soul because they force you to be someone you really are not, to work to their commands. And because they pay you a lot, you do it, but you despise yourself for doing this thing which you don't necessarily think or believe is particularly right or well done. We need more emotion in our organisations. We need more stories. We need more passion. We need more love, actually, and care of people. In the end, we'll need to make a reality of this phrase that people are our assets. You should cherish your assets, not bleed them to death. Ah, words to quench my soul. Let's move on to the next British thought leader. Cannibals with forks. Once I began focusing my career more on issues of social responsibility and sustainable development, 
it was inevitable that I would encounter the seminal thinking of John Elkington, who coined and popularized the idea of green consumerism and introduced the triple bottom line concept as shorthand for sustainable business. Happily, our paths have crossed many times over the years. When I interviewed him in 2008, our conversation ranged far and wide from the influence of Quakerism and LSD to the power of social entrepreneurs and creative destruction. Speaking about one of his most popular books, Cannibals with Forks, he recalled, I'd spent 18 months trying to work through why I was so uneasy with the eco-efficiency agenda that the World Business Council for Sustainable Development was promoting. What I felt that lacked on the financial dimension was the economic impacts that companies have. The other piece was the social agenda. Companies were just beginning to get comfortable with some bits of the environmental agenda, but the social piece was very, very much more complex and painful for them. Taken together, those elements became the triple bottom line. It was for corporate leaders like popping a pill where suddenly you saw the world slightly differently. Elkington credits three books with having a major influence on his thinking. Nikolai Kondratiev's work on what are called Kondratiev cycles, 50 to 60 year economic cycles or waves of building up an economy and then suddenly taking it apart and preparing the ground for something new. Second, Joseph Schumpeter's work on creative destruction, very much in the same territory. And third, Thomas Kuhn's the structure of scientific revolutions, which introduced the notion of a paradigm shift. Elkington recalled an experiment cited by Kuhn in which its subjects were fitted with distorting lenses that flipped the visual field so that they see the world upside down. I think that's what happened when the environmental revolution came through, when the Apollo images started to flow back reflected Elkington. The world was changing in front of people's eyes and the older generations or the more rigidly wired minds found this quite difficult. In the experiment, initially the individuals started to feel quite nauseous. Then their visual fields started to oscillate, to wobble between the worlds as they should have seen it through the lenses and the world as it actually was, the reality. Finally, their perception flipped and they actually saw the world as it should be, the right way up, rather than the way that the lenses were telling them to see. I think that over the last 40 or 50 years, that's what we've been going through, Elkington told me, and I think it's still got quite some time to run. An established economic model and everything that goes with it, the politics and the way you think, is coming under profound challenge and the captains of industry have found this really deeply upsetting. I've often said that our greatest allies in environmental and sustainability worlds are death and retirement. I mean, they just weed out people who can't change and then a younger generation comes through and they do increasingly think different. Elkington believes that our crises will get worse, or at least more turbulent, before they get better. I think in some ways, key parts of our economies and societies are on a doomed path, really, and I think that's unavoidable, he says. 
I think we're headed into a period of creative destruction on a scale that really we haven't seen in a very long time. There are all sorts of factors that feed into it the entry of the Chinese and Indians into the global market, quite apart from things like climate change and new technology. When I caught up again with Elkington a few years later in Greece at an event where we were sharing a platform speaking, his views had become, if anything, more extreme. What happens in an earthquake, he asked rhetorically. The land becomes thixotropic. What was solid suddenly becomes almost semi-liquid. I think we are headed towards a period where the global economy goes into a sort of thixotropic state. And as to what this means for business, Elkington believes that all of these pressures are going to mobilize a set of dynamics which are unpredictable and profoundly disruptive to incumbent companies, so some companies will disappear. I think most companies that we currently know will not be around in 15 to 20 years, which is almost an inconceivable statement, but periodically this happens and there's a radical bleeding of the landscape. We'll find this sort of reassembly going on. Over a period of time, we're going to have some fairly different products, technologies and business models coming back into the West, and I think it's going to be quite exciting, but very disruptive. Smart versus dumb growth. Another voice on sustainability that has been shouting in the wilderness of British politics and business circles for many years is Jonathan Porritt, co-founder of the UK Green Party in the 1980s and Forum for the Future a few decades later. Porritt is also very involved in the sustainability programs that Cambridge University runs on behalf of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, so our orbits have overlapped fairly frequently over the past few years. When I interviewed him, I asked Porritt if his latest book, Capitalism as If the World Matters, in contrast to his first, Seeing Green, was something of a compromise, as he is talking more about reformation than revolution. It's a pragmatic acceptance, he explained to me. Looking at people all over the world today, rich and poor, they're not remotely close to a state of mind that would call for anything revolutionary. There's no vast upheaval of people across the world saying this system is completely and utterly flawed and must be overturned and we must move towards a different system. There isn't even that, let alone an identification of what the other system would look like. So the idea that there is a great kind of revolutionary ferment going on in the world today, he continued, sort of a Naomi Klein type proposition that there is a very clear articulated anti-globalization revolution, I don't see the evidence for that. So pragmatically, if this is not the time for revolution, what do we do? The dominant system is capitalism. It seems to me the choice, therefore, if you're not going to erect barricades and overthrow capitalism, is to firstly explore what sustainable capitalism would look like and then commit wholeheartedly to a set of radical reform processes which would convert today's capitalism into a kind of capitalism which would deliver a sustainable world. Part of this reformation, according to Parrot, is to opt for smart growth over dumb growth. He explains that 
If you pursue the concept of economic growth within environmental limits and economic growth that is generating real outcomes for societal inclusion and social justice, you can go a long way towards something that makes growth look pretty intelligent, pretty smart. We need to eliminate these insane externalities associated with economic growth today to decouple the economic growth from the physical material going through the economy, to decouple it from the impacts on the biosphere. Having done the decoupling, then you have to do the coupling with outcomes for society, so real improvements in well-being. If you can do these two things, do the decoupling on the environmental footprint and then the recoupling on the social outcomes, then you can see how you'd get to a point where growth makes sense. It is so different from what we have now that some people would say, that's not really growth as we know it. Well, that's a completely different measure of progress. Yes, that's precisely the point. It has to be a completely different measure of progress. Lessons from Gaia. Another thought leader that has been questioning the wisdom of our dumb growth over the years is the scientist and creator of the Gaia theory, James Lovelock. In a nutshell, the theory is based on the observation that the Earth is a self-regulating system. In other words, the climate and the atmospheric composition, the ocean composition, the surface soils all stay more or less at a state which favours habitability or sustainability. When I interviewed Lovelock, he talked about the main challenges to the Earth's self-regulatory balance. The first is our population. He believes that we can't possibly support 7 billion and it's only just a matter of time before massive famine and other problems begin to cull the numbers. The second related challenge is climate change, which he warns in the Revenge of Gaia, his book, may already be beyond our control. As he put it to me, living things when threatened or stressed at first resist, and the Earth system has been doing that for quite a while now, but somewhere around 1900 we began to go beyond the limit. So now the system is doing that other thing that living things do and fleeing to a safe place that it knows. And the safe place, which it's been at many times before, is the hot regime, where the global temperature is 5 or 6 degrees planet-wide hotter than now. So is Lovelock a fatalist? Is there nothing we can do about climate change? I think that there is a lot of promise in harvesting algae in the oceans, admitted Lovelock, but the only chance we've got of reversing global heat heating, really getting to it, is to take on Gaia as an ally. You see, Every year, the great Earth system pumps down 550 gigatons of carbon dioxide by photosynthesis from all the plants. That's huge compared with the emissions that we are making, which is 30 gigatons. And so, can we ask the system to just help out a bit? Well, actually, it's not too hard, he explained. All you have to do is, for example, take all agricultural waste and convert it to charcoal. It could be done on every farm using a small charcoal producer, from straw, dung, everything that the farmer produces. And all the farmer has to do is to plough the charcoal back into his fields. There's good evidence that this does not interfere with productivity. In fact, it can be beneficial in some places. And the charcoal will stay there forever. It doesn't oxidise. 
That way, you've got the photosynthesis to really pull massive quantities of carbon dioxide out of the air. I reckon that if we could just take 20% of the total photosynthate and bury it as charcoal in the land and at the bottom of the ocean with algal farms, then we would start taking out something in the order of 110 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year. Now this is far more than our emissions and enough to start pumping down the greenhouse to more reasonable levels. So there is a way out. There is something we can do. Lovelock's slightly ominous yet strangely positive message seems a good segue into the final episode in which I will conclude my epic journey with how my thinking on sustainable business has evolved towards the concept of CSR 2.0 and the Triple S Future Agenda for Business.